This is Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. I'm Henry. And I'm Danny. We're here to tear apart recent stories about our nation's armed forces and our veterans. We hope you'll take a critical look at what's happening with our military. And we hope you enjoy the show. Now, let's get started. Today I'm sitting down with uh, Tyson Manker, a Marine Corps veteran and uh, current client attached to a, a class action lawsuit that's going against the Navy Discharge Review Board to upgrade his discharge, along with uh, many other Navy and Marine veterans in a similar circumstance. So Tyson, how's it going? It's going pretty well. How are you, Chris? I'm doing all right, doing all right. So I was, I was hoping you'd start our time off with a you could just give us uh, the reader's digest of your time in service and how how all the events kind of came together with that sure I'll, I'll do my best to summarize the marine corps infantry enlistment um i served with the third battalion seventh marines based out of 29 palms california okay and i was a young marine there when 9 11 happened we watched on tv and knew that we would be involved in some capacity in a response. And my unit, I was an 81 millimeter mortarman, and we were involved in the initial invasion. It's been 15 years now, which is tough to believe. Uh, and we did what we did. Uh, we invaded, we made it to Baghdad, we occupied, we provided security, and so forth and so on. QRFs, uh, vehicle checkpoints, and the, and the like. Okay. Um, we were uh, not screened before we were sent home. Medically, PTSD, we filled out a questionnaire. Um, and when we came back, I and just about everyone that I served with uh, ran into rough patches. Uh, mine happened almost immediately when I came home and I found out that my parents had separated while I'd been deployed. So Damn. Uh, on leave, I went out with several Marines at 29 Palms. We got drunk. We got high that one night, and I went home. And when I came back to base, I was immediately ordered to CID, interrogated without counsel for three hours. Uh, my interrogator said, I know that you're lying about getting high that one night. Uh, and if you don't cooperate, I'm going to tell your command that you weren't cooperating and I'm going to charge you with crimes ABC, XYZ. You're looking at 50 years in Fort Leavenworth. And I held out my innocence. I said, look, I didn't see them. They didn't see me. He marched me into a booking room and started rolling my fingerprints, booking me. Uh, at that point, I freaked out and said, hey, man, whatever, whatever we need to do, you know, this is not how it's going to go down. I thought I was going to prison right then and there. Yeah. Uh, he took me back into his office, typed up a confession, which I signed uh, and then have never seen ever again. And then I was led on my way. In a nutshell, I was then ostracized, treated like the most toxic, worst Marine ever, even though I was the first non-commissioned officer in my platoon and had higher marks. I was an outstanding Marine. I took pride in that. Uh, and I was hurting at that time. Uh, but I was 21 years old, an infantry Marine. And as Marines are told, you don't hurt. You're not hurting. Suck it up. Uh, and if it's something that you're feeling, it's weakness, right? So I didn't even realize that there was anything wrong. Uh, in a nutshell, I was non-judicially punished in JP Article 15, uh, and charged with using drugs the one time, uh, as in 
as anyone who knows what an Article 15 is, that is the officer saying this is minor misconduct. It says on the NJP, I'm certifying that this is minor misconduct. And then while at the position of attention, my battalion commander informed me that I would be administratively separated with bad paper. And there was nothing that I could do about it. So I served my two months of base restriction, couldn't leave, couldn't drive, walked uh, down to the battalion, uh, wore my Bravos, because uni uh, our uniform of the day when we came back obviously was camouflage fatigues, but 29 Palms was crowded at the time, so we lived in uh, squad bays once again, like we were in boot camp, so no privacy, uh, and had to wear my Bravos. Couldn't wait to get out, right, at that point in time because the Marine Corps had turned on me, my family, and it was just painful to be there. This is a story that I've heard uh, now hundreds of times since we filed this discharge uh, review a lawsuit. Uh, bad paper Marines and others, sailors and even Army and airmen, have contacted me and said, I've read your story, and man, that's exactly what happened to me. I felt so abandoned by the service that I'd given so much to, by my brothers and my sisters who I'd served alongside of. And, you know, it's just a national disgrace. So when I left, you know, I had nothing. I was stripped of my GI Bill. I was months away from my EAS. I was a short timer looking at my time getting out. Uh, but all of that was taken away in an instant. And so I went home with my tail between my legs and a shell of a man that I once was. You know, I was uh, back home a little earlier than expected. So people said, uh, oh, great, you know, you must be going to school now. Your GI Bill is covering that. How does that work out? And I can't tell you how many times I was asked over the years, and, you know, that's not exactly a painless thing to respond to, no. right? So for many years, I struggled with not only what we had done in Iraq, but the bad paper discharge itself. Um, I'm, uh, you know, at the point now where I've kind of developed a theory about this, and I do believe that there is such a thing as bad paper trauma. It's a trauma that is in addition to any type of moral injury that has occurred from the post-traumatic situations, because bad paper trauma is the national government and the country that we volunteered to serve. We're patriots. We love America. We bleed red, white, and blue. And for our country then to, after years of service, fighting on the front line in war, to turn around and say, you have no honor. You're not a veteran. When you die, we won't show up and give your family a folded flag. That's bullshit. And Absolutely. for many years, uh, it, it held me down. And the confident person, the successful, outgoing person, the damn good Marine that I was, that's not what I came home as. I came home wound for sound from war and anger than you can shake a stick at. I was very angry. I was angry at the world in general because of the disgrace that I felt had happened to me and I thought that I was alone. Uh, and so it was only when I was nearly murdered in Texas by a complete stranger that flipped the switch in my mind that, hey, Life is short. Don't let this bullshit bad paper get you down. Go back to college. So I took out loans and paid for college twice, more than the average Joe, right? And I put myself through getting my associates, then getting my bachelor's, magna cum laude, political science, 
studying this government structure that I had fought for and that had disgraced itself when it treated me and so many others that way. And then I decided to go into law school. And at this point, it was still a self-serving mission. I was on a mission to right the wrong that had happened to me. And I am in law school and I'm studying for my regular courses. And in between all of that, I spent every waking moment studying the UCMJ, military regulations, military law, constitutional law, and basically every federal and Supreme Court case dating back to the existence of this country. And I developed my own petition for the Naval Discharge Review Board. And it was about that time. I went to law school, I believe, in 2011. Uh, and over the next few years, there were organizations like Swords to Plowshares and the Harvard Veterans Legal Services and, and others that started putting out reports about the data on bad paper veterans. And I believe it was Swords to Plowshares report, it's called Underserved, uh, that just blew me away uh, when I read that and realized that this has happened to tens, if not hundreds of thousands of other troops, right? Uh, and so it became uh, more than myself at that point when I realized, holy shit, we really have to do something, right? This is a, this is a huge problem. Uh, during that process, I also started digging up government accountability office reports, GAO reports, that were audits of the military's performance, important things that were uh, relevant to my records and my claim that I felt, including the record that is known as the post-deployment health assessment. This is a four-page form, at least it was in 2003 when we filled it out, uh, that was brought about uh, after the Desert Storm War, when Congress and others realized we were sending troops to Desert Storm without any way of screening their health before or after, and they were coming back with all these sicknesses, and Congress was still with its pants down, so to speak, and had to pass a law making the Pentagon develop some sort of screening process. It was in 97 that happened. So... When we invaded in 2003, uh, these procedures to screen us were in place, right? But GAO has come out with a number of reports over the years that shows, hey, we've audited several of the branches and we find that these things aren't being done properly in a nutshell. There's people that are showing signs on their responses for PTSD and depression and they should be sent on for additional screening and they're not. Uh, that's a problem, right? And so uh, what we found was that, you know, I, I can only imagine, and I would love to talk to other Marines and other ground-type troops, whether it be the Navy, the Army, or so forth and so on, that are actually on the ground that are doing these things. Did you do it like we did? We filled it out, you know, kind of in a group, and we turned them back in never to be thought about again, because that's kind of the standard experience. What the law requires is you fill it out and you talk to at least a corpsman about your responses, right? And you get to have an honest converse. This is a medical thing, right? A, yeah. An honest conversation about, hey, maybe I am hurting, right? Because in the Marine Corps Infantry in 2003, we did these things in a group. And we were told, you are not hurting. Suck it up, buttercup. And anyone who asks for help, just raise their hand right now. That was a company or battalion size formation when they did this, 
how many people do you think asked for help? Not None, one. Right. So we have some cultural issues that are not going to happen voluntarily, and we're going, going to force the issue, and that's part of what we're doing here. So um, to continue on with the story, you know, it's this is not about me anymore. Uh, we filed the suit after I was denied by the Discharge Review Board because, uh, as has been the case time and time again over the years, their denials are ar arbitrary and capricious. That's the legal standard, right? So it really doesn't matter what a veteran does or what they submit as evidence, how terribly unfair their situation is. The discharge review boards have just been flat out denying them, saying, we're denying your, your petition. And that's that. Uh, and so the law requires more than that, and the rights of veterans require more than that. So if you'd like to follow up while I get a drink here, Marco Rubio style. <laughs> um, so I'd like to go back to the questionnaire for a second. I, I assume that the one that I did and at the end of 05 when I came back was almost the same. And it seemed to really fit into that army notion of cover your ass. You know, it, 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 you almost like filling out your enlistment paperwork that your recruiter kind of, you know, guides you a little bit and pokes you a little bit. So you make the correct answers, but it, but it's not about being honest about the situation or trying to make better results for, for guys in, in, in your circumstance. Um, I found it really mind blowing in your case that despite having a clear diagnosis of PTSD and only one instance of misconduct, if we want to call smoking weed misconduct, that you got this less than honorable discharge. Um, I actually spent two years, right around two years, working for uh, Fort Lewis CID. And my job there was to be the investigator on the other side of your, your story. I did that for two years. And that was my one of my main job functions was to interview people who had tested positive on a, on a urinalysis. And when I started the job, I, I, I still fit very much into that paradigm of every drug is bad. If you don't have a prescription from a doctor, you're, you're going to pay the price. And as I started to talk to these guys and, and go through some of their stories, I began to notice a lot of patterns. And the story that you told about your time, about trying to deal with your pain and then get kicked out, I'd say 70% of the guys that I went through had to go through that exact same thing. And there were battalion commanders and brigade commanders who were willing to, to let people stay in, do their punishment, continue on with their service. And there were other ones who just threw the book at people. And I, I, I never understood it. I, I felt like it was actually dissuading people from wanting to be in the military because if you make a simple mistake and then it's, the book is thrown at you, where where does the loyalty come in there? Where's the where, where's the real uh, the real information? Um, but that was the biggest thing. It was it was mostly guys that had used weed, and they talked about exactly what you're mentioning about pre PTSD diagnosis. We all come up with a, with a lot of ideas about why we feel this way, but at the time we don't know. We don't have a, a doctor, a psychiatrist, anything, right. and we also can't articulate that to our chain of command because we're not showing weakness. We don't do that. That's just not what happens. Right. Um, the uh, Army's substance abuse program only protects people if they confess to use prior to um, uh, 
your analysis, which to me is, is if you have somebody who's a legitimate drug addict, how does that make sense at all? Because if, if you understand the nature of addiction, you shouldn't be doing that to them. But it didn't matter. If you didn't confess first before the UA, they didn't care. Um, but it really... I think it's also important to, to note, too, along... I, I totally agree with literally everything you just said. And, and you know, your perspective from a different point of view is, is you know, it helps uh, kind of fill in the the true story of, of of how these things come to pass yeah yeah but uh, you know i think just about every ground troop can talk about the inoculations that they were given and then the drugs that they were pumped full of mm -hmm. on the ground and we don't know what the results are and that's nope. often overlooked but let's talk about this we got shots with smallpox anthrax this stuff that's bubbling up on your arms and they say don't touch it and whatever other shots that they give us that now all individually have these various black box warnings from the FDA. Yep. Then you throw into the mix, you've got Cipro, whatever the hell that was. So you've got the malaria and the antibacterial. Yeah. You got those two. So you got this is the type of uh, medical scenario that we've got. You got grunts out on the ground. The corpsman gets out his little bag and drops pills in people's hands. Every day you get online when the command, well, this was not every day. This was when command was suspecting that people weren't taking their pills and you're doing it by the numbers, right? So wow. I remember doing these kinds of things by the numbers in the zone and who knows what this stuff is doing to you. I do know that everybody at least once got the explosive squirts from both ends, right? So whatever kind of dysentery it was. Yeah. And at Hotel Carbala, my unit specifically, we had the CBs build the little A-frame shitters with the steel pots that were full of diesel. Yep. And our boots would go out and stir the shit, literally, and it would be raining down soot all over our base camp, you know, during those days. In addition, they were giving us Dexedrin, which I don't even know. I didn't even know what that was. So they're literally giving us the little speed pills that pilots are getting that nobody really talks about ground troops. So you've got speed pills, anti-malaria, antibacterial. You've got all of this stuff. Uh, you're not getting any type of regular sleep. Your diet is jacked. You're under constant stress, and then you're doing the mission of an infantry person. Every person, and it doesn't take an infantry person, right? Like, and I, I don't mean to. I want to make it clear that uh, you know, over time, my opinion on different MOSs has gone from the infantry marine rah-rahing, going around thinking that in the hierarchy of military MOSs, I am superior and everybody is lesser, that that's literally what's drilled into your mind is a grunt. That's certainly not the case, right? Yeah. And whether you're a motor T drive, you know, someone who's having to drive a target and, and can't even return fire, that's extremely scary. I can't even imagine doing that kind of a job or any other type of support on the ground or even our domestic drone operators who are having to compartmentalize this kind of death and destruction and then go home to their families after their nine to five, you know. So there's a lot of ways that you can be interactive as a service member with the various types of assaults that are part of the global war on terror that is still going on. But rambling aside, I'll get back to the <laughs> point, all of the drugs that they gave us, right? So they're sending us over there, pumping us full of things, and then not even recognizing that um, and if you look at some of the black box warnings that have come out for Cipro, for example, uh, or what is the, uh, my friend, uh, my uh, uh, army attorney friend would kill me, 
uh, if uh, he knew that I couldn't remember the name of the drug that is becoming uh, a problem. It starts with an M. Um, oh. Um, having a brain fart here. Yeah, I, I'm, uh, I'm not sure. But anyways, there, you know, it's it's something that isn't talked about, and it's just another factor in that they could be sending us over there without any drugs, right? And combat alone would cause traumatic brain injury and post-traumatic stress, traumatic experiences. But then you add into the mix of that uh, potential, you send people back home then, and they're having various types of chemical imbalances in their body because once you're back stateside, you just instantly stop taking that stuff, right? You're not taking Cipro and antibacterial and Dexedrine and all these other things. So, um, and then, of course, uh, people are just basically sent home, right? You go out on leave. Other, uh, I, I do understand things have changed some, and my experience is based around how the Marine Corps was... Uh, uh, how things were set up in 2003 and there was a very antiquated view of things back then. And, and I think we've made some strides on administrative boards and making sure that we're not kicking too many people out, but uh, the hundreds of thousands that uh, have still been thrown out without anything and with clear uh, undiagnosed post-traumatic stress, it's, it's a national disgrace. And one thing I would say too, you talked about um, there's this, I don't know if it has, affected uh, recruiting and retainment. Uh, but I would say that in the Marine Corps, we say Semper Fidelis, always faithful, leave no Marine behind. And I just have a hard time believing that all Marines truly understand what that is, because we focus on two things in the Marine Corps. One, mission accomplishment. Two, troop welfare. And by golly, if when we get back stateside after doing the damn deployment, if mission accomplishment doesn't end and the troop welfare begin right then and there, at least for a medical screening, then I don't know when it does. And any Marine who takes pride in not looking to find out what is going on in another Marine's life, if they're having issues, if their immediate instinct is to turn the sword, I think that individual needs to re-examine what it means to truly be a brother or a sister to those on their right and their left. Because I tell you what, the feeling that your Marine Corps has abandoned you, it causes not only this, this trauma to a person's soul, but it, its effects, its impacts ripple out into the communities and are then faced by the moms and the wives and the siblings and the so forth and so on, the EMTs that have to show up for these emergency crisis scenarios when you're having a veteran who's not only having an episode, but they've got bad paper. So they've been ostracized in a completely different way and are struggling with a completely different kind of trauma that could have been prevented altogether, right? So uh, back to the lawsuit, what we're trying to do is kind of put a Band-Aid on a sucking gunshot wound after it's happened, right? These are the discharge. This doesn't change how people get kicked out, which is the first issue. We're trying to fix the subsequent issue itself, which is when we've gone to the boards over the decades, the boards don't follow the law. And that's a problem. It's not just they're not following a certain statute. 
I want all of your viewers and listeners to understand, especially those who who care deeply about the Constitution. We are alleging, and it is the fact, that the boards are violating the constitutional rights of the, the former service members who apply. And that's a big deal. There is a thing known as due process. Everyone is familiar with that. And by denying procedural and substantive due process in various ways to all who apply, the Constitution that we fought to protect and defend, that we is us years after our service, which is borderline insane. Uh, so we need to fix the boards, and we plan on doing that. The problem, though, I would say is I'm, I'm, I'm happy with the way things are going. And 15 years ago, when I thought I was all alone, I would have never have dreamed that a great law school like Yale or Harvard or these others that are getting involved in civilians who could be doing just about anything else are spending their time focusing on veterans' issues and specifically the unfairness of some of these bad paper issues and took the time to get involved. That was truly a big deal and is a big deal, just like uh, the Crawford lecture that we mentioned and I'll talk more about is getting involved. Uh, but even if the boards start following the law, what is that going to do for the homeless veteran who's living in a tent in a big city that can't access the VA right now as we speak, they still have to go through the process, right? So they're gonna have to go get their PTSD diagnosis somehow. Thankfully, the VA has opened its doors in new ways to allow bad paper veterans in the door, right? So they gotta go get their PTSD diagnosis. They probably cannot afford a private doctor or private provider. So they go get the diagnosis and then they still have to formulate a legal argument. And they've gotta come up with their petition and their issue points that for the discharge review boards are based on propriety and equity. Now, if you can have, right, let, look at your face, right? Yeah, if that's... you can have, any non-legal expert explain what these standards are, the propriety and the equity for the discharge review boards, and then the slightly different standards for the boards of correction of military records, then you win today's prize because it's just an unfair burden to place on a veteran to say, hey, you serve this country, but the burden is on you to come up with a legal argument to explain to us why we should honor those years of service. It's insane, yeah. right? Completely insane. So there's a couple of things that we need to do legislatively and through the president administratively. Uh, for the, the members of Congress, what we need to do is, uh, thankfully, we had members like Mike Kaufman, Ruben Gallego, former Marines themselves, Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, a consortium, a collaboration to pass the Fairness for Veterans Act uh, as a part of the National Defense Authorization Act last year, I believe, that year before. But the problem was what that was intended to do was codify the Hegel memo, which I didn't give background on that, but uh, anyone who's been following this issue knows that uh, the first Secretary of Defense that was enlisted, Chuck Hegel, uh, issued the Hegel memo to kind of give guidance to the review boards 
and it gave certain terminology like liberal and special consideration, things like that. They were instructions for the board. And as an executive DOD memorandum, that had that force of law, but it became actual federal law when Congress codified it. The problem was it was watered down, and a, what is known as a rebuttable presumption uh, was removed, and it was just not as strong on behalf of the veteran. So what we need Congress to do is pass a new Fairness for Veterans Act that will create a rebuttable presumption in favor of the veteran. And what that does is the starting point then is if the veteran has bad paper, they meet certain qualifications, has bad paper, has a PTSD or TBI diagnosis, uh, and they submit this and say, it was because of my service-connected injury that mitigated the misconduct, whatever it was that led to my discharge, uh, it is up to the board to disprove that, right? So instead of the other way around. Yeah, yeah. And so it just starts the veteran in a much fairer place, and it prevents the discharge review boards from arbitrarily making these decisions that aren't based on facts or evidence. Uh, so that's one thing. But back to the homeless veteran. These are, you know, places in largely cities that we drive by and people forget about. But these are some that gave the most on behalf of this country. And it should be a matter of urgency. I mean, we're talking tomorrow we need to do this because we talk about the statistic of 20 to 22 veterans take their lives every day and they come from different demographics. I can assure you some of those, if not all of those, are preventable deaths. That we're sitting here twiddling our thumbs, uh, talking about parades and how much we support the troops without ever doing anything substantively that will change the system and fix the underlying issues. So for those veterans that are totally down and out, that have been disenfranchised from the system completely, we need President Bush failed to do this, President Obama failed to do this, so we're looking at President Trump to do this, and that is issue a presidential pardon to clear the records of all other than honorable, less than honorable, bad paper veterans who were not court-martialed. This does not include bad conduct or dishonorable. These are only administrative discharges where there's very little due process. And if they have a PTSD diagnosis, automatically restore their honor. This was done after Vietnam by a couple of presidents, Ford and Carter, and then there was acts of Congress to fix all of the problems, whether it be draft dodging and people were going to other countries or burning their draft cards or protesting, whatever the case may be. People who didn't even fight were given the opportunity to clear their records, as were bad paper discharge veterans. So ultimately, what we need from President Trump uh, is to take that action so that, you know, the veteran who gave up hope decades ago after their service in Vietnam doesn't have to go through what I did. And that was putting yourself through law school and then getting denied by the boards and having to formulate a legal argument and gathering together a legal team to sue in federal court. That should not be the fair and just course of action that we are asking of our veterans to clear their own damn names. It's a national disgrace. So uh, that's what we're currently working on. 
want to ask you about uh, commanders real quick, and we 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 understand you know basically that commanders aren't infallible. They're not perfect. They're not all knowing. Um, but I saw that uh, that annotation in that Dave Phillips article from the New York Times about how that um, long tradition of not second guessing commanders and. I guess from a standard military point of view, I can understand that. But when it comes to these kind of situations, and I also think uh, military sexual trauma would fit into it as well, that having a board or a team of investigators that would help, that they could, uh, you, this, the, the, the soldier, the sailor, the airman, marine could go directly to those people, but it's not a chain of command matter. And I know that that would be, it would be difficult to bring about, and I know commanders are always hesitant to give up any authority that they have. Um, but you know, they when the boards were started back in World War II, um, the idea of creating it was that it was a situation that wartime commanders, military commanders, just didn't have time for, and that way that they the decisions would be made uh, um, more judici judiciously. Excuse me. I don't know if I ever got yeah, to the so, question. So what's, what is your, My, so your, think, your thought about removing these kinds of decisions altogether as far as the investigations and the adjudications from the direct chain of command, right? A, a platoon or a company or battalion commander. It's, yeah. it's specifically, you give the example of military sexual trauma that's kind of been champ championed by Senator Gillibrand yeah, for... Yeah legislation that would do that very thing, right? Remove it from the chain of command. Um, again, my perspective is colored by 1999 to 2003 experience with the Marine Corps. So um, I hope that things have changed some since then, but I can, I can tell that from what I've read now, and I'm, I'm very much in tune with these issues. Let me just say, first of all, for the issue of military sexual trauma. When I became aware of this, because I wasn't aware of it at all when I was enlisted, when I started reading and hearing from individuals who were assaulted, sexually assaulted, by not just others in their branch of military service, but others that they served with, I couldn't wrap my, my mind around the about the perpetrator, right? How wrong that is. Yeah. And not just the fact that it's an assault, but the punishment that the victim in that case is being punished. I couldn't even wrap my mind around how wrong that is, uh, because I compared it to my own situation. And you think what happened to me was not fair. I self-medicated and I should have been, you know, potentially in a hospital at that time. I don't know, but mm -hmm. it was still a choice that I made and nobody held a gun to my head or anything like that. Yeah. But to compare uh, a, 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 a victim of military sexual trauma is a, is a victim. And then for a chain of command to respond by punishing the person who was victimized again, uh, I think that shows how out of whack, you know, command culture is. And if anything, that's a clear sign that these kinds of adjudications and investigations cannot take place in an unbiased way at the command level. They just simply cannot, right? Yeah. Uh, so 
you know, I, I think that, you know, people need to understand, as you, you and most of the listeners probably do, that the military exists for one reason. It's to fight wars and to kill the enemy as quickly and ferociously and powerfully as possible. And a commander has the duty and the responsibility to keep those in his command as tip-top and ready to go and to fight the war and to do their part as expeditiously as possible. That's the role. And so when you have a troop or any number of troops that are injured in any capacity, that's basically like the DL, right? They're, they're holding us back. They're dragging down the speed with which we can operate. And the best thing for uh, a commanding officer to maintain that efficiency is to quickly get rid of them, right? So, you know, civil rights, constitutional rights, all of these rights of a particular, you know, the well-being and the, the medical care that a, a service member should get are too often an afterthought for commanders who are only focused on keeping their command command ready. And so I think that that is a foundational, fundamental part of why we're seeing military sexual trauma victims being punished with bad paper. It's incomprehensible. Every commander who has ever been involved with something like that should be ashamed of themselves. And they need to rethink, again, their oath to the country and their sense of camaraderie with those that they serve with. So uh, I think, again, that's, that's, again, we need to think that you know, the Constitution matters. Article 1, Section 8 says quite clearly it is Congress's job to regulate and maintain an army and a naval forces yep. and all that other stuff, right? So that's where we get the UCMJ, which is part of the U.S. Code. And it would take, of course, you know, it, it seems like heavy lifting. But if we look back to the greatest generation, our World War II grandfathers and grandmothers who came back and organized and created these VSOs that we're all so familiar with, like BFW and AMVETS and American Legion. And we look at the kind of benefits that we as veterans now have thanks to them. They did a lot. Oh, yeah. They did it. They invented the UCMJ, right? So for us to tweak the UCMJ a little bit or to progress things for the next and current series of service members and veterans. That's not asking a lot from us. In fact, it's our duty, right? So service never stops. And I think that, you know, a lot of our friends and our comrades who get out and um, are looking for that structure and that camaraderie, I would encourage them, find it by reinvesting yourselves in veterans advocacy and advocating for change that you know needs to happen. Um, so back to the issue, can a command investigate and handle these matters in a unbiased, neutral manner? I'm afraid not. And until I see uh, empirical evidence uh, to negate my anecdotal experiences and all of the stories and the data that I've seen, uh, nothing's going to really change. And that's the fundamental part. The discharge review boards wouldn't be overwhelmed if they didn't have these mass amounts of people that have been kicked out unfairly uh, applying, right? So if we adjudicated things in a more legal and equitable manner, uh, I think it would start with changing this culture. And 
uh, some things you've got to force, right? The uh, when you uh, when you got your response from the board, did did their written response give you any clues as to no. the, the direction this was headed, or was it just a bunch of bullshit? It was just a bunch of bullshit. For example, I submitted nine issues. They responded to several of them. Uh, you know, my issues, you know, several of them were constitutional in nature, and I outlined a very thorough, with case law, constitutional uh, Supreme Court precedent cases and so forth and so on, just like any legal brief. And they would, on, on one of them in particular, they crumped, plumped three issues in together, two of them were constitutional issues, into a paragraph explanation of why I was wrong and I did not deserve any merit on those claims. So when we say arbitrary and capricious, we mean contrary to the law, like literally the opposite of what the law says. They take positions that they don't have the authority to say. They are legally required to explain why certain things are or aren't the case, and they don't do that. So they really provide the petitioner or the applicant no further information to refine their case and to help themselves in their upgrades. So uh, that's another thing that we're seeking. I mean, these I'd like to know some of these, uh, I believe, from everything I've understood – these are active duty officers that sit on the board. I'm assuming it's some sort of a B billet. Uh, they have done a few kinds of tours as officers. They can go get stationed in Washington, D.C. and do this B billet kind of MOS for, I don't know, 12, 16 months. I'm sure there's a set rotation. So they, they come off uh, the fleet active force, the fleet marine force and the Marines, and they go to Washington, and it's the culture that they just came out of that tolerates this kind of stuff. Yeah. And then they're going to go adjudicate all of the applicants that are veterans that have been out anywhere up to 15 years for the Discharge Review Board. So, you know, it, it's no surprise that, uh, again, these are not lawyers. They're not medical professionals. And they are being asked to review things that have legal connotations and have medical implications. So um, it's no surprise that I'm in federal court right now. And the reason is because I understand the law as an attorney and a federally barred attorney. And it's clear that the officers that I petitioned have no idea what the law is. And so those kinds of um, consequences are why we see the discharge review boards issuing so many denials and why we see so many officers expeditiously forcing service members out with no recognition of their rights and, fr you know, frankly, illegally and unconstitutionally, right? So um, there's a lot of work to be done uh, on, on all of those fronts. And, and I'm, I'm thankful uh, that the, you know, these are not victims at all. And I, I apologize for even using that word, but it kind of in that context, these are survivors, right? Anyone who has gone through that, um, you know, my heart goes out to them and what they have gone through is something that shows how strong they are. And by, you know, advancing this issue and telling their story, 
they're showing their courage and their strength. And that's how we're going to change things. Right. So absolutely. Um, it was a very uncomfortable thing for me to do it. Uh, many years ago, I didn't even want to talk about it, but I realized that the only way that we're going to affect people is how I've slowly come out of the shadow to do with myself, because I know that I've talked to civilians and I tell them my story. They're in disbelief that this was even possible, whether it be for marijuana or one time, or they didn't screen you or whatever else. And yeah. I realized, you know, the, the, the shock and the disbelief that I saw from civilians over the years resonated in my mind. Holy shit. It's not just me that realizes that this is totally jacked up. Yeah. That this is totally, you know, of Congress and the president, the citizens of this country do not accept what happened to me. And they certainly don't accept what happened to people who survived military sexual trauma or the war itself to come back with undiagnosed PTSD or TBI. So um, I would encourage, it's, it's a tough thing to do. And sometimes uh, we don't want to go publicly with our stories, but over time, hopefully we can share each other's strength uh, to really reach one another. Um, and that's kind of been one of the best things that has happened uh, as a result of this lawsuit, and that is the number of not just bad paper veterans who have contacted me, which I talk to each one of them individually and let them know that not only are they honorable and their service was extremely honorable, the fact that they volunteered to raise their right hand to serve this country, knowing for many of them that they would end up in a foreign land and could potentially die or be maimed or come back. Yeah. Uh, and, and not knowing that the social contract that they signed up thinking and understanding that the military would take care of them if they were injured, they had no idea that the military would breach that agreement. Yeah. Right. And so, um, it, it's, it's very, there's something empowering about knowing that you're not alone. Right. And that's Absolutely. something that I, I didn't have at first, and when I read these reports and some of the other stories, that gave me power to kind of fight onward. And so uh, we just got to really uh, advocate for ourselves and one another. So I'm always available, and if anyone, if you have listeners who want to contact me, I'm by, by all means, uh, I'm more than available and would love to talk and develop strategies to help fix these problems because no one else can speak to them uh, like us to live them. No, no, it, it has to be a, a, a personal first-hand thing, and, and it doesn't happen to everybody. I think that's the, you know, the military is huge, and statistically speaking, we're not talking about a huge group of people, but the impact on their life is huge. And, and, and that was something that I just couldn't stomach when I was a drug investigator, was that someone in your circumstance, a, simp, you know, a one-time mistake, and you're thrown from the Marine Corps, do not pass go, do not collect $200, you know, with nothing. And um, I did want to ask you, though, uh, something else I noticed in that Dave Phillips article. Um, my second tour, I got, I was uh, out in Al Anbar province with 1-4, uh, uh, and we were attached to them. And that was how I spent my deployment, was with Marines mostly. We had, I mean, I had my, my MP squad of soldiers, but it was our job to 
deal with the Iraqi police stations within their particular sectors. And, Sounds familiar. Um, I, uh, I didn't understand, because it was, it was my first time being around active duty Marines, I didn't understand how strict Marine Corps leadership is, especially compared to the Army. And being an MP, you know, I did, we, we do half infantry stuff, half MP stuff if we want to get to brass tacks about it. But we did a lot of things that ordinary infantry might not do or would be assigned to something else. Um, but in seeing that, do you think that that Marine Corps leadership notion, I don't know specifically about the Marine Corps, but that after SecDef Hagel made his new guidance and Army and Air Force went from, what was it, like 98% no or 88% no to 45s, and right. the Marine Corps and the Navy didn't change a dime. And I, I started thinking about that, and it's like, is that just is that just the, the difference in culture, how hard, you know, the, the, because it, it is, it's, it's a much stricter place to be than I was ever in in the Army. And I was just wondering about that. I think that's accurate. You know, again, I... I can't, uh, I was never in the army and, uh, you know, so all I know is the, the grueling dog eat dog nature of yep. the Marine Corps. We talk about leave no Marine behind, but then literally on the flip end, we cut each other's heads off at the snap of the fingers, yep. you know, yep. for the most minor incident. Right. And so, uh, what I've heard, what I can say is, you know, fleshing out that notion that, of the dozens, if not hundreds of stories that I've heard directly from people in the army and other branches of the service is when they've done cross training, for example, they've made those same observations like, good God, yeah. you know, they're just brutal to one another. And we, we just went out of our way to avoid them. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just the nature of the beast. I think, um, the Marine Corps infantry needs to be rough. They, and tough. they do. It oh, needs yeah. to yeah. be, uh, hard and ready to fight wars. And so it's a tricky thing. And, you know, th there's nothing that says, you know, we need to start saying, oh, when troops get back, they can break the law at will. No, 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 it's not that. But we need to start being serious about taking one care of one another. Yeah. And to your point about, you know, a commanding officer with little thought to send a troop on their way uh, with a, a the equivalent of a felony yeah, to exactly. take away their school, their GI bill, uh, and potentially further benefits from, you know, the states are doing a lot now here in Illinois and, and in Texas, uh, they provide full, full education. And I know a number of other states, uh, have added to that over the years. Uh, just all of these things, the VA benefits, the VA home loan, the military burial, like why should, whether it's, you know, self-medication or a series of misconduct that is literally showing up for formation late because someone can't sleep or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Really? And not only is it caused by the service, right? So you're like, you know, it's the equivalent of, um, out here in the civilian world, uh, workers comp, right? So you go to a job and you break your leg or something falls on you and you break your back, you're compensated, right? And they, they, you know, see it immediately and you go to the doctor and you get taken care of. But in the military, it's just you act like nothing's wrong. And so, you know, again, the complexity of the commanders needing to maintain, you know, combat readiness, it's an important thing. But 
you know, I think the conversation we're, we're focused on a 2018 mindset. We're not thinking outside the box. Quite frankly, I think we're asking too much of our service members, right? We've got 1% of the population and there are people that are doing over a dozen deployments, right? Uh, never in American history have we asked a smaller population to do more to protect this country than we're doing right now. So instead of having the conversation of, you know, combat readiness and, you know, commanders need to kick people out or keep them in because they're not getting any new people in, right? Yeah, yeah. If there was some sort of mandatory service, which I think sooner or later we're going to have those conversations, whether it's we're going to wait until we get a full-blown attack on the West Coast from some of our serious adversaries, or if we just get to the point where so many suicides and so many people are being just overextended and commanders are saying we can't do it with the troops that we have because they're combat ineffective. Yeah, yeah. Whenever we have those conversations, I think that's where we're headed. So, uh, again, we've had c command units that have been asked to do uh, many, many things, and, and every unit has performed heroically and with valor. Uh, no, you know, to, to be asked to do multiple tours every other year is unheard of in the history of modern American warfare. It and is. to fight uh, so many battles in so many continents, uh, I mean, it's. I think it's time for, if we're not going to do conscription, at least Congress needs to start having discussions about debating the legality of war. So the AMUF from 2002 is not longer covering all of our battlefronts all over the world. And yeah. I know there's been talk recently of, of an, a new AUMF, and we'll see what happens. But we, we really need to have honest discussions, real debate over the legality of war, like I mentioned, but the true costs of war. Right. And I think that's another thing that um, is so widely overlooked. It's basically the, the 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 meat and the potatoes of what we're talking about today. We're talking about true costs of war yep. that are often overlooked. It's not a sexy thing to talk about administrative boards and restoring honor as much as it is of doing uh, mother of all bomb uh, attacks and, yeah. and, and fighting Syria gas, you know, those are things that grab headlines and they're atrocious and they're linked to war. But we always seem to have money for the war, for the bombs, and, and not, not just never else. seem to have the funding on the back end. And I would like to say to that point, too, while I've got you, uh, realize we talk about the VA, and basically all you hear are the horror stories. But I can personally speak and say the VA saved my life. The VA has a fundamentally different role than the Department of Defense. And where the Department of Defense forces people out, many times the VA is there to pick up the pieces. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't be without the support and the care of the, the professionals that I've personally interacted with who are so caring and wanting to get to the heart of my issues that I was able to start turning things around and heal on my own. And so, yeah, there are problems. There are inefficiency issues. But let's be honest. The VA has forty to 50,000 
uh, openings right now that are not staffed. Tons right. Of so them, yeah. when we talk about claims not being processed or the amount of wait time for an appointment, well, it makes a difference if you don't have doctors and nurses to be there to fill those appointments and so forth and so on. So if we're going to have the VA perform, which we need to, we need to fund the VA. So we need to staff all of these openings. And it's also important to know that a lot of people don't even realize there's an ideological attack on VA right now. And that is, it has nothing to do with veterans, nothing to do with veterans care no. or national security. It's an ideological battle that's being waged by people who want less government. They want less government because to them, government represents an impediment to them making a profit. Because if we had a free market for everything, uh, then we could just make a profit off of everything, including veterans health care. The problem with that is, as you know, and many people realize, veterans care does not the same thing as private, regular, everyday people care. No. And that was highlighted in a very important book that was written by uh, the former Secretary of Veterans Affairs, David Shulkin, and three or four other medical professionals within the VA. And that book is called Best Care Everywhere. And what Best Care Everywhere highlighted was the innovative things that VA is doing across the country. It's amazing. It's published by the GPO. And not only is the VA doing amazing things, it is doing such things that the private sector could learn from. And this was, uh, you know, I don't know why they weren't making this more public. Um, let me find my copy. Hang on just one second. Sure, I've got to. Well, where is it? I don't know where my cop, I've got a couple of copies uh, that I, I would have loved to have held up. Uh, but but I would encourage uh, anyone to check out Best Care Everywhere by Shulkin. And, you know, it, it really puts into focus some of the real things that VA professionals are doing on the ground for veterans. You know, they're they're having to come up with new innovations to uh, fix the problems that they're seeing. Um, so, yes, VA has work to do, uh, but let's not. Uh, kid ourselves that if we're not going to fund the VA, if we're not going to put staff in that can do the work, we can't turn around and say the VA is not doing a good job. We haven't provided what, what needs to be provided. So uh, the VA does extremely important work, and I think it's it's important that we have honest discussions uh, with an honest idea of moving forward and improving and strengthening the VA for sure. Yeah, I, I utilize the VA for all my care and... I've gotten nothing but exceptional care in all the, I've sent things since 2011. All of my care has been mm -hmm. through them and they've, they've done a great job. But the, the, the point you made about the, um, uh, DOD shipping off issues that it has back to the VA and then the VA has to come up with some kind of solution. Danny had mentioned an idea of, um, why don't, when we're, when we're doing a new national defense authorization, for defense funds that based on the amount of funding or the amount of manning, I'm not sure exactly how it worked, but that the government has to put so much aside at that moment for veteran care based upon maybe how many people are, are sworn in. Um, but it, but it, the, the connection between those two things needs to be much clearer 
but we can't let DOD continually and, and shove things off that way, hoping, hoping that the VA might be able to do something for somebody. That, that's not the way we should be solving this stuff. I agree. I agree. And it's, you know, until just recently, things that you would think are automatically implemented like using a computer system that the DOD and VA can talk with one another yes, and share each yes. other's data. I mean, simple things like that were not being done. And, you know, you look at how things have been operating in D.C. for many years is things are siloed. And you know, each department and agency is very particular about their own operations and they're hesitant to share anything. So it literally takes an act of Congress to, you know, open it up or make it mandatory for them to share information. So I think that's a starting point, right? That DOD and VA need to start sharing information. <clears throat> Excuse me. One of the better ideas that I've seen that I think is also a no-brainer is that we need to be taking care of service members from the day that they raise the right hand or even before when they're walking into a recruiter's office to make some sort of a packet or whatever you call it that stays with the individual all through the end of their service and then is handed off to the VA that has all of the kind of you know uniformity that can track all of their data. So it's not this cluster you know situation, the snafu where you know you're walking out after your taps processing, you've got your little zipper bag or whatever the case may be, and then you've got to go through all these applications and processes. Like we want to talk about efficiency. If it was more streamlined, you know, think about all the, the denials for claims and stuff that take hundreds of thousands of bureaucratic hours. If we just streamline the damn system, it probably wouldn't cost any additional funds to make happen because although the veterans would be getting their benefits and their care more efficiently, you'd be wasting far fewer man hours going through all the wrongful denials and the lost oh, records yeah. and all of that other stuff. So uh, we've got a lot of work to do, but the solution is clearly not burn down the VA. Right? No, like that's no, no. Quite literally one of the dumbest and most ideological driven, anti-veteran, anti-patriotic, and potentially treasonous, right? You're going against Lincoln's second inaugural, the thing that it's hard to find an American, I'm sure they exist, but someone who says, I don't support the troops, like everybody supports the troops in yeah. theory, how much are we willing to prioritize? And I think that, you know, uh, one thing that I've been, I, I, I love to see veterans running for office and getting more civically engaged, even if they're not running for office. Uh, it's important to remember Politics is local. Forget about, we've talked about all these national issues, but when veterans run for their local city council or their county commissioner or any other position like that, and they bring their experience and their honor and their discipline to American governance, that is so important, right? So uh, it's just really important that our voices, we're less than 1% of the population as is, and we're not going to have the things that are important to us, the, the patriotism that we want to see our fellow citizens, uh, you know, living by, unless we get out there and share our voice and our ideas. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's very easy to, you know, 
get done with your service and be proud and look out and, and, you know, kind of feel that the country isn't paying attention to, you know, the wars and, you know, these, these needs that are important to us, but we can't allow ourselves to, you know, be so turned off that we resort to our veteran only circles and we, you know, put up more walls between ourselves. What we really need more now than ever in this country is veterans leadership. And when organizations need a leader to speak on their behalf, every organization in America, every type of identity politic or persuasion or you know, socio-ethnic background is represented by the military. You've got every race and nationality and gender and orientation and all these beautiful things that, you know, if, if you didn't know any better, you know, an, an uneducated person on the military would think, Oh, all veterans are the same. They brainwash them all into the same thing. But veterans are quite the opposite, as we all know. One of the most diverse uh, institutions in America, and it's a beautiful thing. And so when we get out and you have an organization or a company or an institution or a cause, I've encouraged and will continue to encourage these types of entities Hire veterans, associate with veterans, talk to veterans, and help them lead you to a more successful and brighter company or institution or group. Because veterans are great spokespeople, as we know. There's a pitch for, for veterans right there. But it's true, you know. And I think that if we feel our country is sliding down uh, uh, the wrong path, it's up to us to get involved. That's our duty of continued service. I've started telling people don't, and I don't tell people not to thank veterans for their service, but the question to lead with is tell me about your service. Tell me about your time in the military and what you did and how you felt about it. And to not make it a, a, a token statement that people just say because, oh, he's a veteran. I gotta, I gotta tell him thank you. Um, like you mentioned, you know, that there's, there, there's a fabric that veterans bring back to civilian life that is very, very helpful and really, like you said, needed right now in our country. But we don't do a very good job of getting that out there. Like, I really liked your idea earlier about something that would start with somebody at the recruiting office and go to the entirety for their time. Um, and like for guys that, you know, like uh, job skills that really don't duplicate out here, what is both DOD and the VA doing to help those guys get skills that are not involved in shooting at people. You know, we're, we're, we talk about leadership principles. We talk about getting these skills, but some of the skills do have to be, they have to be divested from how they were learned to, to fit in. But so many people are just focused on what you just described, the token veteran. You know, he's usually a white guy. He's usually got a vet hat on. I'm just spitballing here, but that, that's the image that they get. That's the misperception. Exactly. Right? And that we need right. the people to understand that all walks of life, all places, foreign countries, people who aren't even citizens come here right. and give us language skills right. or other good skills. And that's what gives the military its strength. Absolutely. The absolutely. I would argue. Yeah, no. And, uh, but if, if, but if we're not bringing that diversity of thought back out into the civilian world, we're just shooting ourselves right. in the foot. Right. Yeah. So I, I would pitch my the VSO that I'm blessed to be working with right now 
and I, I work with a lot of these types of situations. I work with, uh, it's a VSO called Veterans Education Success. Uh, it was created uh, by our president, Kerry Wofford, who was uh, the chief counsel for the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee uh, back several years ago when the committee started investigating for-profit colleges and some of the abuses that were uncovered uh, as these companies, education companies, were seeking out federal GI Bill benefit money and some of the, the tactics that they employed. And it was pretty horrendous, just mind-boggling, you know, some of the emails that they would send each other, get their asses in classes, because, mm -hmm. you know, it's not about the quality of education or post-graduation employment assistance or industry. No, it's about getting them in class. And yeah. they knew that federal law said if we get them signed up for the first day they get them in class, then we get the whole term of GI Bill funding, right? Yep. And just So uh, Veterans Education Success started uh, as an organization that were funded by a, a, primarily to start by a former veteran, a veteran, a former service member, who had used the GI Bill post-World War II and was very successful, and there was nobody to really handle this problem. So uh, we help veterans that have been, you know, misled by a company uh, or an institution about their GI Bill benefits, and we try and get them some sort of a resolution. So uh, in, in talking with, and, and so that's kind of given me a, a, the ability to interact with a lot more recent veterans and you know, veterans who are using their benefits currently or just uh, recently finished using their benefits and some of the, the challenges that they've faced and, and some of the issues that are important to them and to all of us now are like you talked about, for example, getting credit for your MOS training, right? So, and it's a, it's a complex problem. You know, people need to understand that, you know, I think it's totally crazy to think that someone who's, let's say, an electrician in any of the services, they, you know, they're highly skilled by the time mm -hmm. that they leave. So for, to think that they should then start off as a day one apprentice or whatever the case, you know, the same type of day one training that a civilian who has had no training, that makes no sense, right? So we do definitely need to come up with some sort of a system so that veterans can have their uh, the, the skills that they learn that do translate into some sort of a job of some sort of, or some sort of a certification maybe yeah. even. Uh, but it also, there's the difficulty of, you know, someone like me who is in the infantry kind of limiting in what that certification yeah, would yeah. be. Right. I mean, I, there's no place in the world where I can get out and drop 81 millimeter mortars anymore. No. Like it's no. too bad because I wish that I could, right. <laughs> I would love to do that even if it was just on the weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there are those challenges and maybe, you know, if the, the problem then lies with, if we start doing that, that's going to literally change how recruitment happens, right? Because new recruits are going to start thinking about, their training that they're going to use when they get out more than ever before. And I know a lot of people do that when they select their career now, yeah. but it'll be even more of a focus. Right. And so how, you know, what if infantry retention numbers go down as a result, mm -hmm. because people don't see the career advancement. So, and it also goes along with, again, 
DOD is there to fight wars, and that's okay, as it should be. We do not need to change that. And, and you know, I, I would probably easily argue and debate with someone who thought that we should get away from that. It's there to fight wars. And as a matter of fact, I'm all for changing the Department of Defense back to the Department of War. I think that that's a necessary change that needs to happen in time so that every time we talk about it, we hear the word war, right? We've yeah. sanitized ourselves to the point where we think that military, you know, unilateral attacks are defensive in nature. And it's been, you know, stretched so far that, you know, people aren't thinking about combat and war in, in a realistic way. So yeah, yeah. just to war again. Uh, but to the point, though, about the current Department of Defense, uh, they, to, you know, invest resources in, for example, transition assistance. You know, there are programs that get people ready for the outside world. In all reality, I've heard of several, you know, great debates and panels and discussions about these kinds of things. In reality, if we want to prepare people to leave after several years of structured rigmarole, we need to probably spend a couple weeks out processing, yeah, right? And yeah. right now it's just a matter of days. And like you talked about with the post-deployment health assessment in the Army, it's the same in the other branches, it's basically a check in the box. And here's where you go sign up for It's not really focused on getting anyone ready for a career no. because that's not DOD's job, right? No, so it's, it... I think we will, you know, reasonably face push back if that's something that that we undertake at some point saying you know DOD you need to do more to you know get people ready for when they leave DOD you know it's it's DOD is going to say that's the VA's job or or, or something else yep. so we're here to fight wars and not uh, uh, you know transition out or whatever the case may be so th there are certainly issues and uh, you know that's the work that lies ahead. Well, Tyson, I thank you so much for sitting down with me today and talking about all this stuff. Thank you. I, um, if any new news comes up about it, if you ever want to come on and, and just do a quick spot, just some new information or something like that, please let me know. Um, like you said, it's a it's a it's a very long process, and if it's if we can convince people that the value added to the services separate from our defense is something that the country gets back in terms of leadership later. I think we'd have a have a, a better way to do that. But right now it's it's just so many different places, so many different systems. Um, I've been chatting with my uncle and he's trying to track down um, service records from the late seventies. And I'm 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 doing the best I can, but I don't, you know, who knows if it's there, who knows where it is. And that should not be the answer. We have all this technology like DOD and VA system not being able to talk to each other. That We're Skyping right now on parallel systems without any issues right yeah yeah i don't you would think that the investment would be better to do a good one up front so the system works better for longer but military management i guess yeah, I, if i if i could say on that ending note you know uh people need to understand that the true cost of war that is all that we've been talking about Society pays them one way or another. They do. Right? And, you know, to think pragmatically and efficiently and try and come up with better systems, it's not just the moral thing to do to say we want to take care of veterans, those that we send to fight the wars that could be psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, physically injured when they come home. Because 
PTSD, even when the DOD does not deal with it, it doesn't go away. No. TBI does not go away. It just goes with the veteran, and the longer it's unaddressed, the longer it festers, and the worse the problems that go along with it can be. And so they go home. And again, they don't go away. So you've got family members that are very concerned that want to make sure that their loved one who's now come home changed gets the care. Something's clearly wrong. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, this has happened a number of times, three times in the last two months here locally in central Illinois. I've gotten a call after the fact. You have a young, recently discharged service member. The last one was an airman that had some sort of an episode. Police showed up. They end up in cuffs. One was tased yeah. in cuffs. And so, you know, these kinds of stressors and drama, you know, his whole family had to deal with that, this most recent one. Yeah. And then the police that showed up, you know, they didn't want to tase someone. And when they found out that it was a veteran, I'm sure those that were involved probably felt horrible. Yeah. So now they've got to live with that. And, you know, this guy ends up in the local hospital. He's you know, chained to a, a bed and nurses are now involved. And, you know, so it's economic costs and, and just these ripple effects don't go away. They come out here into the community. So uh, it's it's after a decade and a half of war, these problems are popping up more now than ever. And, uh, you know, we're going to confront them, I guess, is the, the point that I'm making here. We're going to confront them one way or another. And we shouldn't be doing it as an afterthought after the veterans serve their country, come home, and now we're getting into trouble. We need to be proactive. And all of the things that we've discussed are part of that effort. So uh, thanks for having me, Chris. And uh, thanks for all the work you do. And uh, we'll keep you updated. All right. Appreciate it. Talk to you later. All right. Thanks, Chris. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today. Please come join the conversation at www.fortressonahill.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill or on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. We want to hear from our listeners about the topics and issues pertinent to America's military and veteran communities. And last but certainly not least, Analyze your news and its sources very closely. Verify everything you read. And remember that no one, no matter how powerful, are above criticism, especially those with the power to send others into harm's way. We'll see you next time.